I wanted to deal with anxiety. And so when I first uh, considered this passage, I was only going to ask you to turn to that section, really, verses 25 through 34. But then it dawned on me as I was studying and thinking through this that it's really critical that you understand the context and the, really the nature behind Jesus' command to not be anxious, especially in our culture today when we are so steeped in the idea of overcoming anxiety with something other than truth. Uh, you've heard the term clinical anxiety or the idea that anxiety is a disorder. And so I think it's important from the beginning that we acknowledge that the world has hijacked the reality from Scripture that there is a solution to anxiety. We've been in Philippians 4 a couple of times in the past, in the past several years, and so that's kind of my go-to passage in trying to understand how to address anxiety. It's very clear. You might even call it a very clear and uh, precise or concise recipe ingredients for overcoming anxiety. But Jesus himself deals with this for us in the context of something that you might not have expected. You might not be thinking that anxiety is the result of what it is in terms of what Jesus is exposing here. Philippians 4, Paul addresses the fact that anxiety is the result of ingratitude. The person who's not thankful is certainly going to be anxious. That's kind of a distilled thesis statement of the idea there, at least the problem that Paul is addressing. Anxiety is the result of an unthankful heart. Why do we say that? Well, he says, be anxious for nothing. And then he goes on to say, but in all things, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I was having a discussion about this a number of years ago with a, a young man, and I thought we were tracking, I thought we were making some progress, and he made this statement. He said, you know, I'm actually an expert on anxiety. And I thought he was intending to be funny. It turns out he was very serious and uh, went on to explain that anxiety is something that can be used well and that it has its proper place. And I think there might be some confusion in that regard because we tend to think of anxiety as you know, real deep concern, but the command is clear. Be anxious for nothing. So if you don't define sin by disobedience to the commands of Scripture, then you, know, you probably want to rethink your definition of sin. The concept of sin is an archery term. It's the idea of missing the target. And to know the target is to know what the Bible says. And so what usually happens at this point when I've been talking about anxiety is that you know, at least some small handful of people are thinking, but he doesn't know what I've been through. He doesn't understand that I've been diagnosed by a clinician, a physician, who's told me that I have clinical anxiety. And I would just recommend that you acknowledge that that clinician, that physician was created by the great physician. It shouldn't just be our inclination, it should be our passion. If Scripture addresses it, to see what Scripture says. Now listen, I am no one to dismiss the significance of legitimate medical conditions. Years ago, I remember a friend of mine saying, Todd, it's ridiculous how in tune you are with your body when it comes to food. 
it's not that I've had to work hard at it. I just know that sugar makes me tired. Give me a Snickers bar if you want to see me take a nap. It won't be long, and I'll be out. Kimberly likes to joke about the fact that when we were on staff at the Christian school in Lancaster, you know, uh, I was the principal of the school, and every now and then she'd come in, and I'd have, have my feet up on the desk because we had baked potato for lunch that day. And I was gone pretty quickly. And so not only do natural foods affect our bodies, obviously chemicals affect our bodies, but in addition to that, stress affects our bodies. The difficulties of life have a major impact on us. But the solution is in Scripture. And if I could be real practical for just a moment before we get into our passage, wisdom to which God calls us, which He says He pours out for us in abundance if we will only ask for it, should cause us to think about our diet, should it not? Should cause us to think about what we're putting into our bodies and what we're putting into our hearts. Proverbs 4 tells us to guard our hearts. We should guard that which comes in, protect the heart. This last week in our men's study, Wednesday and Saturday, we talked about sexual purity. We talked about the need from 1 Thessalonians 4, not only to cleanse the heart, but to protect the heart, to build literally some sort of fortress around the heart to prevent that which leads to sexual temptation, which leads to sexual immorality. And when it comes to the matter of anxiety, many times anxiety is strictly the result of what a person's been meditating on, and a pill's not the solution. Adherence to God's Word is the solution. As you see there in your so that statement, or your little thesis statement there, we've said Jesus exposes hypocrisy that leads to eternal destruction and gives us six commands so that we will repent, trust Him for eternal reward, and help others do the same. Now, I'm going to have to move very quickly here, so forgive me when I will not be dealing with all the nuances of the passage that I normally do. It's just not possible. But as we look into our text this morning, I want you to understand that the Sermon on the Mount, we're looking at one portion of the Sermon on the Mount, it is intended as an attack on legalism. You might not have thought that. When you think about the Sermon on the Mount, you tend to think about the Beatitudes. You tend to think about the Lord's Prayer and fasting and the call not to judge others and things like that. But the, the intent, Jesus' intent here, is an attack on the Pharisaical religious leadership of false converts who are doing everything they can to saddle people with an unbearable burden that they would have the, the homage, the servitude of others so that they would lead them into the same legalism with which they are operating, you know, pretending to have everything in order, pretending to be fulfilling the law of God and calling others to fulfill the law of God while they themselves can't do that. Jesus comes on the scene in his inaugural sermon and he lays a spiritual chainsaw to the root of that mindset, that false religious pursuit. And in verse 1 of chapter 6, he really gives us an introduction to the rest of what we're going to look at. Look at what he says here. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Listen, no reward means no heaven. 
The person who has no reward is the person who has no eternal life. And that's the warning. We want to look at the words of Jesus as a warning so that we would avoid destruction, eternal destruction, but also that we would have the, the privilege and the joy to help others avoid that eternal destruction as well. You know, you, you and I live in a mecca of false conversion. The persuasion to believe in a false Jesus by one's own doing rather than seeing what Jesus himself, as we're going through the book of John, but also this morning in the book of Matthew, what Jesus is saying about what it really means to be reconciled to the Father. One of the major theological problems with the modern watered-down evangelical church is a disinterest in understanding the true condition of the human heart. Genesis 6, 5 says that every thought and intent of man's heart is only evil continually. It's a pervasively chronic reality that infests the entirety of the human heart prior to conversion. That person needs a savior. That person doesn't need to pull himself up by his bootstraps and choose the savior. He needs to be saved by the savior. Jesus makes this statement, beware practicing your righteousness before people. He's calling attention to the fact that there are those who are leaning on having done that for their conversion. The Pharisees were false converts. He says to them, if this is you, you've got no gift of eternal life from the Father. You're doing what you're doing to be seen by men. Now listen, even for those who are genuinely saved, there's still this inclination to want to be exalted, to want to be seen as something better than what one actually is. But Jesus then goes on to unfold this in in really six essential commands, six imperatives that will help you and me not only to be certain that we are not falsely converted into a simple desire to want to be seen as religious people, but also that we'd be able to help others be spared from that self-destructive reality, experience eternal reward, to do so all for God's glory. So point number one, point number one, give as one needy person to another. Verses two through four tell us, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. You see that? He's saying to you and to me, if this is our inclination to do what we do so as to be seen, there's no reward. In fact, that is the reward. What kind of reward is that? It's an earthly reward, and it's not worth much. Boy, it feels good in the moment. Someone's praising you for what you have done. But that's all you get, if that's what you get. So give as one needy person to another. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, Paul says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see that? See, that's a man-made theology under attack. Why do you boast as if you chose Christ? Christ. When Jesus himself says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me. His words. 
It's boasting. Now, we're told to boast. We're commanded to boast in what? Boast in the Lord, prophet Jeremiah tells us. Don't boast in riches. Don't boast in anything else, but boast in the Lord. So how are you going to go about doing this? How are you going to go about giving to the needy so that your left hand does not know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret? Be prepared. Set some money aside to help the needy. Have it ready. Have it ready, I don't know, in an envelope in your glove box, sealed, ready to give to someone who you know has a legitimate need. We've talked about this much in our financial study recently, and so we're certainly not saying you know, give money to anybody and everybody who happens to ask for it. Many people need something a whole lot more than they need your money. In many cases, they need work. They might need food. But trust the Lord for discernment that if someone has a legitimate need, especially someone who's not, you know, standing on a street corner asking you to fill that need, chances are pretty good if the Lord's caused your paths to cross that he is enabling you to help that person in a legitimate way, a legitimate way. But be ready. If you're going to give as one needy person to another, you're going to recognize that all you have is a gift from the Lord. Everything that you have is a blessing from him. It's not yours, right? You're a steward. You're a manager. Nothing you own do you own. Nothing. So everything, you know, remember the treasure principle, everything you have is intended by God to be used for eternity. That's how you ought to be thinking about it. So isn't it great when God gives us the privilege as beggars to give to other beggars? That's what I do for a living, right? You're beggars and so am I. We're begging God to help us to believe him, to help us to be faithful to him, and to help us to help others do those things as well. So give as one needy person to another needy person. Number two, pray as one forgiven person for another. How much do you pray? I mean, really, how much of your life is really devoted to carving out time where you are committing yourself to plead with God on behalf of others? Verse 5 says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. You know, the one who loves to pray publicly but has no interest in praying privately. Listen, with much love for you, if that's the pattern of your life, you don't mind praying publicly, but you've got no private prayer going on, that's hypocrisy. That is a desire to be seen by men, even if it's in the small context of a private Bible study and someone says, hey, will you, will you be willing to pray? And, and you say, sure, but inside you're thinking, you know what, I never pray. Why are they asking me to pray? <laughs> Years ago in my little church in Houston, the pastor had left uh, for some occasion and asked me to step in and preach while he was gone. And he had this pattern of asking one of the men in the church to pray at the conclusion of the sermon. And so I thought, well, I'll do the same thing. And so I, I got to the end, and, and this dear soul, his name was Carlos uh, Pierce. Carlos Pierce was an older man and lovely guy, served in the church. And so I finished, and I said, uh, Carlos Pierce, would you pray? Pass. 
I didn't know what he meant. So I just prayed and thought, I'll figure out what he means later. And the dear man was just being honest about the fact that he had no prayer life. So he wasn't going to pretend that he did. I think far better. I mean, you don't want to. I probably scared you when I said that a minute ago. You probably don't want to scare people with your response when they ask you to pray. But wow, you do want to be a person who's developing a private prayer life so that as you, you intend to honor the Lord privately, you're trying to do so publicly as a result of what's going on privately. So pray as one forgiven person for another, not one who has achieved God's favor, but one who is in fact forgiven. Verse 7 says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now listen, I'm going to deal with this sensitively, tenderly, but some of you really need to think about the fact that you repeat the same phrase over and over and over every time you pray. Lord God, Father God, we thank you, Lord God, for all that you've done, Lord God. And just, Lord, we just ask that you just think about what we're just about to say because just every time we think about saying it, we say the word just 25 times. Okay, now I'm being lighthearted about this, but that is godless chatter. You don't talk to anyone else like that, do you? Hey, Todd, good to see you, Todd. How's it going, Todd? What's happening, Todd? It's just not normal speech, and you stop and think about why you're uttering those meaningless phrases. I mean, it's important. You're wasting words, wasting breath. Prayer should be meaningful. And Jesus goes on the attack of the Gentiles for saying what they say out of vain repetition. They want to be heard for their many words. He says, do not be like them in verse 8, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Can you see how that is a prayer that's dependence upon the Father? You know, you're not called to pray these exact words. He says, pray in this way. When I was in college on the football team, we would have a prayer at the beginning of practice, the end of practice. And when I went back to visit after I had graduated a number of years later, a number of guys on the football team would recite the Lord's Prayer, and a number of others were mocking the rest of them do that. They'd look around because it just got to be a rote prayer. It was really sad to me to see that. But a willingness to pray this prayer is not simply a willingness to recite the exact words. It's a willingness to pray in this way. And, of course, it begins as a person who is forgiven, thanking God for his holiness. That's what hallowed means. Your set-apartness, Lord. That's how he calls us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, usher in your kingdom. Bring heaven down. Things are bad. They've always been bad since the fall. But things are bad, and we see the evil. We see the wickedness. And we should want the Lord to return. We should be praying that as a person who's forgiven, who longs for the return of Christ. We should be thrilled about his return. He says then in verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. Do you find yourself praying not only for your own provision, but the provision of others? You, you know people who are experiencing difficulty financially. 
Are you praying, pleading with the Lord to bring daily bread to you and to them? Perhaps that you would have enough daily bread to be able to pass some of that on to others. That's what we ought to be praying for. Proverbs 30 speaks of the desire to not be poor, but to also not be wealthy. You know, the temptations that come with being poor that you would steal, the temptation of becoming wealthy that you would have no interest in the Lord. That ought to be our cry. You know, Lord, give us our daily bread. (laughs) Don't let us be wealthy. Oh, but don't let us be poor. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Can you see how that is a prayer that's directed to the Father as a person who is forgiven on behalf of others who are forgiven or others whom you would hope would be forgiven? See, that's a forgiven person who wants to maintain the conviction or the belief that he is, in fact, forgiven. Paul says in Colossians 3.12, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. You see that? recognizing that it's God's doing that brought about your forgiveness. There is a tendency to think of oneself as being elite because he has a relationship with the Lord and therefore willing to look down on others who don't when it is the result of God's compassion. Put on then, it's, uh, you're robing yourself in it. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Why? Because you've been chosen. You've been chosen. You've been granted compassion. So put on compassionate hearts, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, and put on patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. How? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Listen, if you have no interest in forgiving someone, it's one of two things. It's either, and this is the scary part, but it's true. It's either that you're not forgiven. It could be that. But at the very least, it's because you're thinking that you chose your forgiveness. You have a very self-righteous legalistic mindset about that person who has offended you. And you have this warped idea that that offense is greater than your offense. Somehow that your sin is, you know, something worth forgiving. And the sins of that person you choose not to forgive is not forgivable. You know, if you're going to wait for somebody to be forgivable before you forgive... You're going to die before it happens because it's not going to happen. Nobody is forgivable. Nobody. You say, well, then how could Christ forgive anybody? Because of the miraculous love of our God and Savior who gave his sinless life for the atonement, for the propitiation of sins of sinners. That's how. He was a legitimate substitute. His death was a substitutionary, vicarious death granted for all those who would trust in him for forgiveness. And the resurrection is the proof of that. Not only the resurrection of Christ, but the earthly representation of that resurrection in the person whose life is a new life, Romans 6, 4. He walks in newness of life. Because he has Christ, he has Christ's death, and he has Christ's resurrection. And his life is 
proof of that, and so he wants others to experience that. He's experienced God's compassion, and therefore he wants to be a vessel of that compassion. That's the necessary reality of what it is to be forgiven. Well, verse 13 says, And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, Lord, help us avoid sin. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. We have a very structured plan in our church for spiritual growth. We, we ask you to be faithful to the worship service, you know, to sit under sound teaching and to worship with the saints. But we also ask you to be involved in a family group so you're really interacting with others with prayer and with service and uh, with singing and really loving one another as an intimate church family, a Christian family. That's your Christian family. But we also ask you to be being discipled and to be discipling. You're really pouring into others as Paul poured into Timothy and Epaphroditus and Titus and Silas and others but that you would become a Paul, a Ruth. You would be willing to pour into others because you've been poured into by others. And so it's a great joy for any faithful Christian to want to be involved in counseling others. But again, let me be very candid and tell you that if you're seeking personal counseling and you're not faithfully involved in the worship service and in discipleship, And in a family group, that counseling is nothing but you stealing time from that person when you could be getting and would be getting what you needed from those three venues. But you don't want that. You don't want body unity. You want personal attention. I personally won't do that for a continued period of time. If a person asks me for personal counseling, but he's not faithfully subjecting himself to the commands of Scripture... It would be a misuse of my time and his, and it would be a disservice to that person. You've got to be plugged into the body. You've got to be subjecting yourself to the body of Christ, acting as a forgiven person, and praying for others that they too would be forgiven if they're not already. Well, number three, starting with verse 16. Number three, fast as one who is well cared for by your father. See, I can, how can I go without a meal? I, I might die. <laughs> no, you won't die. You won't. He says in uh, verse 16, and when you fast, okay? Everybody say it with me. This is an implication. When you fast, what's the implication? That you fast. Say, it's not an imperative. He's not telling us to fast. Right. He's assuming you're smart enough to do it. (laughs) When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. This was a ritualistic practice. There was training for this. How to manipulate the masses by the look on your face. Some of you were born really good at it. It's work not to be a manipulator. It's work. 
I think all of us are manipulators in some sense. What an ugly, hateful way to treat brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't want to be manipulative. The look on your face means something. Don't be that person who, who constantly wants everybody to think you're just tired. Oh, my life is so busy. What am I going to do next? Don't be that person. Be the person who's bright-spirited, happy to be here, you know, ready to go. You say, I just, I'm, I can't do that. That's okay if that's really true because that'll change as you endeavor to be faithful to the body. It may be true of you that you are, in many senses right now, unable to do something about the desperate look on your face because life is desperate right now. That may be a reality. I think probably for every person who's ever legitimately come to know Christ, that was true just prior to that because you don't come to Christ with a resume. You come with a notice of bankruptcy. You're down and you're low. You think you're broken, and you might be, but the right response is, I probably need to be more broken than I really am. See, that's the way you come to Christ. That's the way the Father draws believers unto the Son. He draws them out of disbelief into belief by forcing them to reckon with their desperate condition. We should fast as one well cared for by our Father because we are well cared for. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. No, don't put ashes on your face. Why would you do that? Roman Catholicism is the modern false Judaism. It's all about drawing attention to self. Why? Because if you're taught well as a Roman Catholic, you're taught that you earned your salvation. You're taught that it's what Christ did plus your works. Four years ago or so, four or five, we were at lunch. I was with a couple. I made the statement that salvation is by grace through faith alone. And one of those people said, plus works. God has saved that person. And that person no longer makes that statement. But Roman Catholicism is all about your performance because Jesus didn't do enough. If you believe it's based on your works, you won't fast. And if you do choose to fast, you'll want everybody to know about it. I remember I met a guy many years ago, and the first thing this guy told me was, hey, just so you know, I fast every Wednesday, so if you want to go to lunch, it can't be that day. That's a whole lot in a first conversation. I don't think that was the kind of fasting that Jesus was calling us to. You see, your father who sees in secret will reward you. If you're convinced, your father will reward you. Why? Because you know he has rewarded you you won't be inclined to gain attention for fasting. But on the other hand, if you think the Father's reward of eternal life is something that you earn just a small sliver of, you might be inclined to want people to feel sorry for you in whatever you do. Well, point number four, invest as one who will enjoy the reward in heaven. Invest as one who will enjoy the reward in heaven. Verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. When we were going through the treasure principle study, and Ben Gonzalez and I were talking one day after the study, and he made the comment, you know, I have a car that, well, it, it's rusting. And I have some clothes that 
are eaten by moths. And I thought, man, that's a living word picture right there in your home. And I've experienced that as well. We don't experience that out here, but if you're from the East, you know what it's like to have a car that's cancer-ridden, we call it. The body is gone, partly, because of the salt that they put on the roads. The rust just eats it up. But that's what will ultimately happen with whatever it is you're investing in on an earthly level. Now, be real practical about this. Think through the devotions of your life that are expressed by what you take out of your wallet and where you put it. Christ's command is do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. You had an opportunity to do this in a very direct fashion last Sunday when Folly and Lily and their kids were here on their way, you know, they're kind of passing through here, on their way back to Madagascar, trained now for the purpose of training national pastors in Madagascar. And you gave $4,000. We, we put $4,000 in his pocket. Beloved, that is money eternally invested. That is an eternal investment that will certainly result in eternal reward. As I look around the room and I think of what we went through together in that financial study, I see many of you and I know the sacrifice that it is for you to give regularly, but then to give on top of that. Why? For eternal reward, not that you would be seen for it in this lifetime. You're not concerned about that. You're not you know, jumping up and doing a few cartwheels on your way to the offering bag. <laughs> but you're doing what you do out of love for Christ, out of love for those whom he would save. You're doing this knowing that there is eternal reward awaiting you. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, he says. This is what we might call irreducible theology. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Listen, I'm not interested in putting a guilt trip on you. But if you're feeling guilty, you might want to rethink where you're investing your money. It's clear. These are the words of our Savior. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Interesting, isn't it? When he deals with money, he does this so often. He deals with money and then he goes on and he shows a, a magnifying glass upon the theology of what's going on in that person's life. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So if the eye into, the light into, the window into your life reveals a devotion to money poorly spent, there's a problem of darkness. And then he sums it up by saying, no one can serve two masters. Lest you think he changed the subject, he didn't. He says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That really almost doesn't necessitate any explanation at all. You're either serving one or you're serving the other. And, and that's, that is a pervasive reality across the board in all humanity. 
What do you mean by that? I mean that if a person is not legitimately serving God, he's serving money. You say, well, what about you know, the false converts who are committed to the self-deprecating lifestyle that they think is going to lead to some kind of favor? There's still a devotion to money behind the scenes. Read Second Peter. The false teacher has a passion for illicit, immoral sex and a passion for abusing people by way of getting money from them. There's some effort, somehow, some way to gain monetary favor by the one who's manipulating people with religious legalism. But the investment that we're called to is described as serving God. On the other hand, an investment in earthly treasure which will be eaten up by moths and rusted away and, and stolen by thieves. That's an expression of not serving God. It's an expression of serving money. Well, number five, trust as one who is well cared for by your father. So we talked about fasting as one who is well cared for, but also trusting as one who is well cared for by your father. Verse 25 Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You wouldn't think so by what you see in the magazines that come out of Los Angeles. You wouldn't think so by looking on the Internet. You wouldn't think so by looking on a lot of professing Christian's social media pages, you might think that the pinnacle of life is dressing well and having all the material goods necessary to draw attention to oneself. Isn't life about more than food, more than clothing? Jesus puts it in perspective by saying, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not of more value than you? See, when we talk about destroying the self-esteem mindset, we are not saying that a person doesn't have value. What we're saying is that the person who has bought the lie of the world's pseudo-Christian, because it's crept into the church, the, the pseudo-Christian idea of self-esteem, we're saying that he overvalues himself. We're saying that he doesn't value Christ because he's been taught to have higher self-esteem. There's no inclination like that in the Bible anywhere, that you should think more highly of yourself. Paul says in Romans 12, you should think more lowly of yourself. Take heed lest you fall, he then says. The word esteem is used in Philippians 2. We're told to esteem others as more highly than self. The way the NAS says that is to consider others as more important than self. The self-esteem mindset calls you to think more highly of you, and that's just dangerous and dishonest. But you should trust as one who is well cared for by your father knowing that Jesus has said, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Well, of course you are. 
God doesn't redeem animals. Animals do not have souls. They have emotions, but there will be no animals in heaven. There's nothing in Scripture. I'm getting some weird faces right now. Uh, there will be no, I'm sorry, but there's, there's nothing redeemable about an animal. You don't see anywhere in Scripture the call to evangelize a German shepherd. You've got a soul that's going to live forever. Your mindset ought to be to trust the one who cares well for you and has commanded you to not be anxious. You're more valuable than a bird because if you are redeemed, God has expressed that value in terms of his perspective on you. It's not value based upon you having earned it and kind of morphed yourself into something worth God's pursuit. It is that God has chosen by his kind intent, the kind intention of his will, to place his love on you. Verse 27 in our text says, Which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Every time I sit and just fret over something for at least five minutes, and I'm, I'm going to live at least a year longer, right? No, you would never say that. You're probably taking time off of your life from an earthly perspective. You feel awful. It does you no good. David acknowledges in the Psalms that there's actually an effect on his bones when he's anxious, when he's committing the sin of anxiety, eating up his flesh. Jesus goes on to say, and why are you anxious about clothing? Dare he say that to an American? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See what's happening here? Anxiety is exposed as a disbelief. Say it this way. Write this down if you're writing. I, I encourage you to write this down. Ask yourself, when I'm anxious, what is it about God that I'm choosing not to believe? That's what it comes down to. Are you choosing not to believe that he's going to provide enough clothing? You really think he's not going to provide enough food? You're disbelieving God. Not just what he has said, but who he is. And there's a sense in which when you do that, you're choosing your own deity. You're choosing to believe that you know better about God than God knows about God. When you stop and meditate and just wrench your heart and you just go on and on and on and on and on, fretting about what might happen or what might not happen, are you not disbelieving what God has said about God, therefore saying, I'm smarter than God, therefore deifying yourself? But this is really the issue. Oh, you have little faith. It's about faith. It's not blind faith. I think a lot, a lot of times as Christians we are accused of blind faith, probably because it's probably true in many cases. We don't really know the word. We don't really know the history of the church. We don't really know much about why we don't like Roman Catholicism. We don't really understand how the Bible was made, and yet we believe it. 
You know, and somebody starts asking us questions, and we're like, well, you just got to believe. See, that's, that's why we get accused of that. But, but Jesus is not saying just believe for the sake of belief. He's calling us to believe in the reality of the resurrection. A historical reality known pervasively to all mankind historically since it happened indisputable reality of Christ being resurrected from the dead. Your problem is uh, you don't believe that. It's selfish. It's the willingness to believe something other than obvious reality. That's what he's saying. That's, that's the problem of those who are listening in. So verse 31. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. What's he saying? He's calling a person whose life is indicative of such disbelief a disbeliever. He's calling that person an unbeliever. This is why in Matthew 18, when we address someone's sin, what we're saying is, Hey, hey, brother hey, sister, you know, you're acting as if you're not a brother. You're acting as if you're not a sister. Jesus is saying the Gentiles act like you're acting. You know, the Gentiles seek after all these things. The Gentiles are materialistic. You know, the Gentiles have multiple subscriptions to lots of awful magazines. You know, he would say that today. He didn't say that then. They didn't have those back then. But that's, that's the mindset and the pursuit of the unbeliever constantly being subject to the world's way of thinking. No wonder you're anxious. No wonder you're anxious if your library, so to speak, if your smartphone is filled with the counsel of ungodly people. Proverbs 12, 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. But your father knows that you need these things. So then this imperative, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now go back to verse 33. This is where you get the idea of trusting as one who is well cared for by your father. Trust him that he's worthy of your pursuit. He's worthy of you to seek him. He's worthy of you to seek his kingdom and him. What does it mean to seek his kingdom? It means to be certain that you are of his kingdom, to understand what the kingdom is. The kingdom on earth is the church. Seek the church. Be faithful to Christ by being faithful to his body. Oh, and seek his righteousness. What's that sliver of unrighteous passion in your life that you are convinced you just can't let go of and it's really not that big a deal? What is that? Is it bitterness? Is it gossip? Is it money? Is it your car? Is it the car that you want to have? Is it the spouse that you don't have but want to have? Is it the boyfriend, the girlfriend? Straight A's? He says then, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Now you know this is a figure of speech, right? Tomorrow actually doesn't really care about you or your food, or your clothing, or anything. Tomorrow doesn't think. But the idea is that you're going to have more over which to be anxious tomorrow. Focus today on what's at hand today. 
because tomorrow there's going to be more trouble. So focus on today. Now, he's not saying don't plan. He's saying why worry about tomorrow? Why sin the sin of anxiety tomorrow? Why not get the sins of today addressed, the anxieties of today addressed? Let's deal with that right now. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow is coming, but there is no reason to sin over it. Well, then point number six. Be cleansed so you may help others be cleansed. You say, why? Now, why did he choose chapter 6 and then a little bit of chapter 7? Because this is a clear attack on legalism. And he wraps it up in verses 1 through 6. Really, the, the whole sermon is an attack on legalism. But here in particular... He's exposing the legalistic mindset of the person who won't give as a needy person to needy people, but one who maybe would give as an elite person to a needy person. And he exposes the self-righteousness of the person who won't pray for others because he thinks he's earned his forgiveness. And he exposes the legalism of the one who won't fast because he's not convinced that his father is caring for him well. He's convinced that you know he's got to do that which is going to result in his care because God won't do it. Now, you do have to work, but he's convinced that God's care for him is not enough. And Jesus is exposing the fact that the one who doesn't trust Jesus, the one who engages in anxiety... Jesus is exposing the legalism of of that. That's about works, personal works. That anxiety is a reflection of the fact that you are convinced you've pulled it off before, I'm going to pull it off again, and at some point you've got to throw up your hands and surrender and say, you know what, anything I did in the past was obviously not enough. In fact, it was damning. But my hope has to be in the purity of Christ the efficaciousness of his death and the joy of his resurrection. So here, having addressed all that, he calls us to be cleansed. Now this is maybe the most misused passage in all the Bible. Do not judge lest you be judged. That's a judgment. That person is saying, you know, you're you're judging. Oh, really, why do you think I'm judging? They're making a judgment about you making a judgment. Jesus says here, judge not that you be not judged. But that's not all he says. If that's all he said, then that person would be right, that you're not to judge. But he actually goes on to help you understand how to judge rightly. In John 7, 24, Jesus says, judge with righteousness. A lot of people confuse this with the idea of condemnation. Of course, you aren't to condemn. But verse 2 says, For with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged. That's the idea. Just be careful. If you're going to judge, be ready to be judged. That's what he's saying. (laughs) That's helpful, right? That you would then think about how you judge, knowing that that's how you're going to be judged. You want to judge with grace, compassion, with pity. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Again, a figure of speech, but wow, it's powerful, isn't it? You know, the guy that's got a log, I remember seeing a skit where some kids took something that was made out of paper, but they painted it. It looked like a log, and it was taped to this guy's eye like it was shoved in his eye, and he's walking around hitting people with it, judging them. Hey, what's your problem? Hey, cut it out, man. You keep hitting me with that log in your eye. No, no, no. I'm just trying to help you with a little speck. It's ridiculous, but the figure of speech is ridiculous. That's the point. It's hyperbolic. It's speaking in extremes of how people can act in their judgment of others. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. That's where we got the title of the message. Hypocrisy, the mother of anxiety. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not saying don't take specks out of your brother's eye. He's saying have clear vision before you do it. And then this. This is in Jesus' efforts, the point at which you stop. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The time does come to stop attempting to bring truth to bear upon someone. You know the drill, the person who just wants to talk about something else. He doesn't want to talk about repentance. He doesn't want to talk about faithfulness to Christ. He wants to talk about what you can do for him financially. Or socially. Or educationally. But he doesn't want to talk about righteousness. He doesn't want to talk about giving to the needy as if he himself is a needy person. He doesn't want to talk about praying as a forgiven person, praying for forgiven people. He certainly doesn't want to fast. He doesn't want to invest in heaven. He doesn't want to trust the Father choosing to reject anxiety, calling it what it is. He doesn't want to do that. And he certainly doesn't want to be cleansed so that he can help cleanse others. He certainly doesn't want to remove the log from his own eye. He's enjoying his bad vision. He's self-righteous. This could be true of a wealthy person. It could be true of a poor person. But what changes a person is Christ. What changes a person is Christ. The Christ who says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. The Christ who calls us to store up our treasures in heaven and to know that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Your heart should be with Christ. It should be with glorifying Christ and by resting in his atonement and by resting in his resurrection. Just a handful of practical instructions in light of this text, and we'll finish. When it comes to your anxiety, call it sin. Stop calling it an illness. It's so easy to be irresponsible with regard to sin if we can just say, oh, it's not my fault. 
It's got a disorder. Stop calling it that. Call it what it is and praise God that his son died for it. Say it this way, Christ died for my sinful anxiety. Therefore, I can overcome it. It's going to take time. It's going to take work. It's going to take the body of Christ to help you think through that and come to a place of repentance. Here's another practical application. When you are convinced of a higher view of yourself than you know you should be, restrain your lips. Restrain your lips. He who is wise restrains his lips. Just stop talking for a while. As I said earlier, ask what you are not believing about God. And then stop demanding what you know you don't deserve, as if you deserve it. Stop nurturing the idea that you deserve better than eternal torment. Choose to be thankful instead. Be thankful for what God has given you. Knowing you didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, and whatever you have, it's from above, and God has given it to you because he loves you, and he loves you because he chose to love you. Do that. Do that, and God will enable you to abandon, really destroy, really overcome the hypocrisy that leads to anxiety so you trusted him. Father, we're grateful this morning for such a powerful text, and we acknowledge that there's so, so much more that could be addressed and one day will be in our church. But we give you great thanks for the clarity of this passage that helps us to realize that repentance and trust in Christ for eternal reward will lead us to the ability and the joy to help others enjoy the same. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.